We're reading today from Hebrews chapter 2. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again he says, Here am I, and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who, are, who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he has... He had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is also able to help those who are being tempted. Thank you this morning for the, the reminder about the significance of the blood. As you were sharing that this morning, I was reminded about the lyrics to a song that is a a favorite in our home. Uh, Speaks of being covered by the blood. Uh, Our sins are covered by the blood. My sins are all covered by the blood. My iniquity so vast has been blotted out at last. My sins are all covered by the blood. Uh, Thank you for the reminder this morning. Of the importance, significance of the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask if you would to pray with me. And then we're going to jump in and we're going to look at the first four verses this morning uh, of Hebrews chapter 2. So let's pray. Fathers, we prepare to study your word and learn from you this morning. Pray that you would awaken us to the core of our being about the eternal things. The things that ought to matter greatly to the one following Jesus. And Lord, we're confronted today with so many obstacles, 
There's so many opportunities to get sidetracked in this life. There's so many potential derailments. And Lord, I ask that you would guard your church from the evil one. That you would teach her through your spirit to walk diligently and persistently in your word of truth. Father, I pray that no one among us would think of himself more highly than he ought. Father, we are reminded of the passage in your scripture. It says, to let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. For no temptation has overtaken the child of God, such as is common to man. But God, this morning we praise you that you are a faithful God and that you will not allow your child to be tempted beyond what he is able. But with the temptation, you will also make the way of escape that he may be able to bear it. So Father, we pray this morning that we would take heed to what you have spoken in your word. For the text today issues a warning for those who choose to neglect your great salvation. And Father, may it never be said of us that we neglected your abundant grace manifested at the cross of Calvary. And we thank you for showing us the full extent of your love, Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. MacArthur in his commentary begins, I think, in a, a fitting way. It's a fitting beginning, I believe, even to our time here this morning. I'd like to read as it pertains here to our text before us in Hebrews 2. He says, hell is undoubtedly full of people who were never actively opposed to Jesus Christ, but who simply neglected the gospel. He says, such people are in view in these four verses. They know the truth and even believe the truth. In the sense that they acknowledge its truthfulness, its rightness. They are well aware of the good news of salvation provided in Jesus Christ, but are not willing to commit their lives to him. So they drift past the call of God into eternal damnation. This tragedy makes these verses extremely important and urgent. End quote. You know, not long ago I I smelled something burning in the living room. Not a good sign, right? Something, smell something seems to be going on. Come to find out through some folks here in the body who were helpful and more uh, tech savvy than, than myself... Uh, we've come to find out that the, the desktop dinosaur that we uh, have has a, has a bad power source and it's needing replaced. Well, when I opened up the computer at the time, I noticed a great deal of dust inside the CPU. Lots of dust. Cloudy, dusty mess. And it dawned on me that I hadn't cleaned the unit in I don't know how long. I don't know if the power source going out had a direct connection to the vast amounts of dust inside the unit. I would imagine at some level it had a connection. The point is that a regular checkup would have been helpful for the computer. A regular maintenance 
would have helped. You know, regular maintenance is critical not just for computers, right? For lawnmowers, for apple trees, we do some pruning, right? Furnaces, automobiles, no maintenance and regular upkeep, and you're bound to start having some problems. Amen? Anybody ever experienced some of those problems? Yes. Things are going to start breaking down. And the cause? Tied into the text, I'll submit one word. It's neglect. Neglect. That's the cause. Not taking care of it. Not paying attention to the things that need to be paid attention to. I'm just reminded of the, the coach back in the day. Well-known football coach. They lost a game to a team they shouldn't have lost to. And the next day in practice, he comes in with football in hand. And he says, gentlemen... This is a football. This is NFL players. The whole message he's trying to communicate is, we have lost what we used to know. We've gotten away from the basics of the game. We need to go back to a real basic understanding of how things are supposed to happen. We've lost sight. We've not paid attention to the fundamentals. We've not paid attention to the details. You know, not paying attention to the fact that your tire treads are getting thin can cause an accident to happen. Not paying attention to the salt level in your softener can cause problems with your drinking water in the home. Not paying attention to the tendencies and patterns of your children can lead to reaping damaging results in the years ahead. Now many of the things that I'm speaking about can be corrected if proper care, proper maintenance, proper training is happening. When the oil gets changed regularly, that helps the vehicle run better over time. When the marriage is attended to regularly. That helps your relationship grow over time. When you open the Bible regularly, you'll find that having His Word in you actually does help you to live out the Christian life that He's called you to live. Is it any wonder, friends, that sin so easily entangles When folks fail to pay attention to their high calling in Jesus Christ. Neglect explains how the drift happens. Reading again those words up front. Hell is undoubtedly full of people who were never actively opposed to Jesus Christ, but who simply neglected the gospel. I want you to think about the audience that's being addressed here in the text. 
He's addressing a group of people who know the truth in Jesus Christ, but are not exhibiting the fruits of knowing that truth. He's talking to a group of Jewish people who have a good handle on Jesus, what he did and what he came to do. And yet they have failed to this point, to this point, and that's the key, to this point. They're not doomed to disaster. This is a warning being put forth to help them understand if you keep going this way, here's what it's going to look like. These are people who have not been actively opposing the name of Jesus, but instead have found themselves candidates of doing very little, if nothing, about this gospel truth spoken and embodied by this son, Jesus. I mean, imagine hell being full of people who simply neglected the gospel truth. Just neglected it. Like a weed-infested garden. Those of you who have gardens know how quickly those weeds pop up, right? You don't have to put anything into the ground to make the weeds grow. They come. They just come. But in the same way, these people, as we think about hell being full of people who simply neglected the gospel, they didn't tend to it. They just let things go in their lives and they never took the time to pay attention to what was happening. The people being addressed in this text are those who have neglected the precious truths of the gospel, who have forsaken the good news of Jesus, who have used their time to live on their terms instead of operating on the Lord's terms. It's one thing to neglect your lawn during the spring rains and you have tall grass, right? But the text is pointing to something much greater, a much greater neglect that can happen, a much more costly neglect that can destroy the soul, friends. The Hebrew writer is issuing a warning in these four verses. You know, warnings, I was thinking about, uh, I, I deal with warnings in what I do when I blow a whistle. There's a particular rule in the college game where there are two horns on a timeout. If you have a 30-second timeout, there's going to be a horn 15 seconds before the final ending of the timeout. So 15 seconds into a 30-second timeout, there's the first horn. On the first horn, teams are to wrap things up and start to come out onto the floor. When the second horn beeps at 30 seconds, the end of the timeout period, the team has to be on the floor making their way to their spots. If they're still in the huddle and they're still receiving instruction from the coach, on the second horn, they receive a warning. Now, the next time they do that and decide that they want to stay in the huddle on the second horn... They receive a technical foul. You see, a warning is intended to help them get out sooner, to do it the right way. 
God's word gives us warnings over and over again. And what we're reading here in Hebrews chapter 2 is the first of five primary warnings throughout this whole letter. It's a warning. It's a warning intended for us to hear and take action on. Not just to hear and go, wow, that's a pretty good warning. And continue neglecting the truth of the Son. This warning that's being issued has in mind a response. A response is needed in this text this morning. So we look at and we see that in the text here, and we see that um, with who the Son is in chapter 2, verse 1, he's issuing this warning, and we see a warning followed by an an exhortation. Those are coupled together there in verse 1 of chapter 2. Remember, where we've been in chapter 1 was an exposition, an explanation of who this son is, right? An explanation of who the son is. Chapter 2 begins, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Therefore. We always talk about therefore. We talk about these connector words and what they're doing. They're piecing together the text. They're helping us to understand that what has just come connects to what's now being talked about. So what has come in the first chapter? Well, in summary, he's saying, therefore, in light of who the Son is, in light of who the Son is, who is this Son? Well, he's been appointed heir over all things. He's the creator of the world. He's the radiance, the brilliance of God's glory. He's the exact image of God himself in the flesh. He's the sustainer, the carrier of all things by the word of his power. He's the Savior who cleansed us, purged our sins at the cross... And he is also the one who has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's who he is. And those things were shown to us in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1. But I believe there's therefore also in light of the fact that this son is better than the angels. We talked about this last week. In light of the fact that he's better than the angels. What's that mean? In light of the fact that he is the son of God. In light of the fact that he is the one whom alone we are to worship and serve. In light of the fact that he is the righteous ruler over all things. In light of the fact that he is the unchanging one. He is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In light of the fact that he is the victorious, authoritative one. Therefore. You see, all this comes prior to chapter 2, 1 through 4. And he's bringing us to the point where we now are going to, and he desires for us, the writer through the Holy Spirit, desires that we take action on what we've just heard. And we saw that in verse 14 of chapter 1, a proper place and role and function for these angels... They are to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Who will inherit salvation. That word, that's the last word of chapter 1. That word is going to come into play right here in chapter 2. Salvation. So great a salvation is the way it's going to be worded here in chapter 2. Therefore, verse 1. 
Therefore, in light of this future aspect of salvation, the future aspect of salvation we know as glorification. I pray we all here long for that as pilgrims and sojourners here on earth. The text transitions then in Hebrews 2 verse 1 from exposition, from helping us understand who this son is to an exhortation which includes this warning. And before moving on, the writer wants to solidify the truths that have been taught in the previous chapter. He he wants to see that we have effectively heard and grasped the depth of who this Jesus is. For if we know this son being described in the first chapter, it will make all the difference in how we live. If we know him to be those seven things listed in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. If we know him to be better than the angels by the criteria of the five in those verses in 5 through 13. If we know these things, it then is going to translate, ought to translate, into living differently. What we're going to see is that this message of salvation, according to the writer of Hebrews, is an ongoing process. That salvation is not simply a walk the aisle one time, profess, say a prayer. But the writer of Hebrews is going to emphasize the importance of an ongoing walk relationship with this son who has spoken. Friends, that's significant for us to grasp a hold of. Knowing Jesus ought to matter to the child of God. Knowing that the Son has spoken moves him to walk and talk like Jesus. 1 John 2, verse 6. It's my favorite passage. It reminds me all the time. He who says he abides in Christ ought himself also to walk as Jesus walked. High bar? You bet. Possible? Absolutely. How? Power of the Holy Spirit working in me. The bar is perfection. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. High bar. That's called holy living. An endeavor to walk as he's walked. How did Jesus walk in the context of 1 John? He walked in the light, not in the darkness. Do we really desire to walk as Christ walked, friends? The text today blasts a a warning call. It's a blast. So if I seem a little on edge this morning, it's because I believe the text is on edge This is an urgent appeal. Remember the big idea of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 22. If you've missed it, chapter 13, verse 22. I appeal to you, brethren. He is appealing that the readers, the listeners of this letter would, what? Bear with this word of exhortation. You see, this whole letter is written as a word of exhortation. And there to bear with it. Bear with it. You might not like what it says, but we're called to bear with it. You might not actually be living this out, but this is a strong word of exhortation that we need to bear with. We need to get on board with. 
And so we have the first of several warnings here in these first few verses of chapter 2. So therefore connects what's previously been spoken about the Son and His superiority to the angels, which the writer, by the way, is going to continue all the way through the end of chapter 2. And he's turning the dial of attention now upon his listener. And you know, friends, this is so important. Because sometimes we can read the word, we can hear the word preached. And we hear these ideas, we hear these truths. But sometimes we fail to remember that these ideas and truths that God gives to us in his word, they're meant to make a difference in your life. They're meant for you to take a hold of and to walk in. They're meant for us to be able to see and to go, I haven't been walking that way. And and they're meant for us then to, to have course correction. How does course correction come about? What's the one word in the Bible that talks about this course correction? About repentance. When we realize that what God has said, when we realize, let's get specific to the text, when we realize that the Son has spoken, and we realize that we haven't been walking that way, we haven't been living that way, our first response ought to be, not rationalizing why we're walking this way, our first response ought to be repentance, a turning away, being sorry, truly sorry that we've sinned against this holy God, and now it's our desire to not walk that way anymore, but to walk as he's called us to walk. That repentance has in mind, you've probably heard this said, it has in mind a complete changing of mind about the things that we used to do. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. We. Notice it's we here. In other passages that come later, it might be you, more of a second person. Here it's we. The exhortation comes in the first plural. And the we here is most likely referenced to their status as, as, as Jewish people. And I was reminded here of how Paul oftentimes places himself in the same category of his people even though he himself was a follower of Jesus Christ. Remember how, how urgent he is and how appealing he is to his own countrymen, many of whom stumbled over the stumbling stone of Jesus Christ. They missed Jesus and Paul longed for his countrymen. His heart's desire was that his countrymen would come to know this Jesus. And the writer, I believe, is writing in the same manner, exhorting his own people as he is moved by the Holy Spirit. And the we also communicates, I believe, some compassion for his listener. He's not standing up on some ivory tower and pointing down at them and saying, you, we. We're in this together. An earnest and yet loving exhortation is set forth. He longs for his people to hear this truth and realize the danger signs currently exhibited by some of his own people. People who knew the truth, knew of Jesus, what he'd done, and yet still remained unmoved, indifferent, distant, yes, even drifting, as he's writing. The idea of giving the more earnest heed, we might translate that, some of your translations might bring this forward, 
to pay more careful attention to. You know, there are some things in this life that we just don't pay very good attention to. Would you agree? You know, I said earlier, we just, sometimes we don't take care of the things that we have. We don't maintain them. We don't check up on them as we should, perhaps. According to the text, what is it they're called to pay more careful attention to? It says, to the things we have heard. To the things we have heard. This group of people is not an ignorant bunch. That's not the card. They're not, they're not playing the card. Well, I've never heard the truth of the gospel. I've never heard who Jesus is. That's not this group of people he's addressing. They have heard. They do know the truth. They've been neglecting it. The writer is calling them to pay more careful attention to the things we have heard. Question, from whom have they heard these things? Think context. The Son. The Son. The Son has spoken, right? Chapter 1. Pay more careful attention to the things spoken by the Son... He says, I've just written to you about the superiority of the Son and communicated to you His credentials. I've shown you how everything is pointing toward the arrival and the acceptance of God's Son. You need to give the more earnest heed to the things that we've heard. The Son has spoken and you've not heeded His words, friends. As I think about giving the more earnest heed I'm reminded of of a couple things on my end and I'm hoping that in your situation as you hear those words you're reminded of a couple things on your end of what that's really getting at what that's talking about there's three things in particular I'd like to bring forward giving the more earnest heed I think first of all it's giving a great effort you know the Bible talks about this idea of straining toward the finish line agonizing, Paul uses that word in one of his epistles, agonizing, stretching out to the tape, desiring to persevere all the way to the finish line, giving a great effort, exerting yourself in this race of faith. Friends, have you been doing that? Are you giving it your all? Understanding who it is who's spoken. Understanding, as we see here later in the text, this is a great Salvation. I think secondly, as I read those words about giving the more earnest heed, it reminds me of taking responsibility. Not just great effort, but taking responsibility for working out this great salvation in my life. The word calls me to work out my salvation as God is going to work in me both to do and and according to his purpose. Work out the salvation. I have a responsibility as a child of God to work out my salvation here while I still have breath. He's given me breath. Am I working out the salvation? Am I taking responsibility to be an actual child of God that he's called me to be? He's given me and placed before me a high bar, a high standard. What am I doing with the responsibility as a child of the king? Great effort. 
great responsibility. And there's a third thing that comes to my attention as I read this about making and giving the more earnest heed. It's realizing that the Son has spoken will require a cost. A cost. There's a cost involved. Let's not think for a moment that this salvation is deemed great apart from a cost, a sacrifice. Chris talked about it during the Lord's Supper. The blood. The blood of the Lamb long ago pointed to the blood of the spotless Lamb that was to come, Jesus Christ. This Son who has spoken gave Himself. He laid down His life. Friends, I think in light of that, we can be giving the more earnest heed to what he's spoken. For this son that we're talking about is the son who gave himself for you and me. Giving a great effort, taking responsibility for this salvation in our lives and realizing that the son and what he's done, there's a cost required. The text says, that we are to give the more earnest heed to or pay much closer attention to. One writer says of this particular word, he says, it's on the basis of who Christ is that we must give careful attention to what we have heard about him. We cannot hear these things and then just let them slip through our minds. What kind of listener are we? You know, the Bible elsewhere talks about being a doer, and not just being a hearer, right? You know what else it also says in that same passage in James? It follows up by saying, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you've got it all figured out, you've got it all covered, that you are going to arrive safely in heaven and be with Jesus. Are you a hearer only? If you're a hearer only then you are deceiving yourselves. Pay attention to what the Son has spoken. If we're not willing to give the more earnest heed to what we have heard from God's Word, we may find ourselves in great danger. And the text tells us what will happen when we refuse to pay careful attention to the Son. Look at your Bibles. Chapter 2, verse 1, when we refuse to pay attention to the Son whom is spoken. The last part of verse 1, lest we drift away. Lest we drift away. Nautical terminology, drifting away. You probably think of a ship out sea, drifting. In fact, there's a few different nautical terms here in these first few verses of chapter 2. Lest we drift away. We talked about how these warnings are scattered throughout the book of Hebrews. Ray Stedman in his commentary, he has some insightful things to share about this. Uh, says them very well, I'll share them with you. And he speaks of this drifting away. He says the danger that's faced in this first warning is that of drifting away from the truth. A dramatic word is employed for drift away. It means to flow by or to slip from. 
And it describes the carelessness of mind, which perhaps occupied by other things, is not aware that it is losing ground. He goes on and says, the danger highlighted is that of a great loss occurring unnoticed. Did you get that? A great loss occurring unnoticed. The cause is not taking seriously the words spoken to them. Inattention or apathy will rob them of their treasure. And you know, friends, I was reminded when I was reading that, I was reminded of the story back in Genesis. And in the story back in Genesis, I believe it's chapter 18. In chapter 18, when those angels, those men of God come, and they're telling Lot that he needs to leave. And you remember, he had two daughters. And he goes to the daughter's husband's. You remember their response when he, when he pleaded with them to go? The daughter's husbands laughed and thought it was a joke. You know, it got me, reminded me thinking of how often when God speaks in his word, do we casually treat it? Praise God in that passage of scripture that the angel actually himself intervened and took their hands, took Lot, took his daughters, and they got out. That was a picture of mercy. And friends, we've got to understand that when God, through his son, speaks in his word, he intends for us to obey it, not to give it lip service, not to just post it up on the wall as a good verse, But it's intended for us to walk out. It's intended for us to live. You know, he goes on, Stedman says, it's not necessary to openly renounce the gospel. There are many today who are openly renouncing the gospel, aren't they? Many. We we hear it all around us. But he says, one can remain lost by simply and quietly drifting away from hearing it or hearing it with no comprehension of the seriousness of the message. You know, that phrase in the scripture says, uh, from time to time, being sober-minded. And in particular, in Timothy, it's applied to the young men. The young men today, being sober-minded. What is that dealing with? I think it's dealing with, at least in part, some of what we're talking about this morning. Taking God seriously, that when he speaks, we're to obey. Not give him lip service. Not walk around with a plastic smile. But to live as he's called us to live. Walk worthy of the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope this morning, friends, as you read, we're spending more time in the first verse because I believe the first verse is critical to what comes after. And I hope you can hear the warning that's being issued by the writer. Can you hear the warning? Can you hear the pleading, the urging, the exhorting? You know, every now and then as we sit here in our chair on a Sunday, we hear the whistle of a train go by, don't we? And I was thinking about that. If you were to be standing near or on the tracks and you saw the lights of an oncoming train, coupled with the whistling sound of the train coming full speed ahead. 
you, you more than likely would take heed. At least I hope you would take heed and get off the track. I think about that and I'm reminded of the judgment day that's coming. You know, one day the son is going to return and God has appointed his son to be the judge. Praise God. He's coming back to judge sin. And the standard of judgment is going to be, according to the Bible, righteousness. That's the standard. Not church attendance. Not how many Bible studies you were a part of. Not how many service projects you tended to. Not how much money you gave to the church. Not even how many times you read through your Bible. The standard is righteousness, which only comes, listen, it only comes through taking heed to the Son, believing in Him and receiving Him, John 1, 12, as your Lord and Savior, living for Him, doing the will of the Father, just as Christ Himself did. The warning goes out to all who know about Jesus and have chosen still to live for themselves. There's a far greater danger, friends, for those who know the truth of Scripture and have not responded to it. The text says, notice, the text says we must. Do you see that in verse 1? We must. We must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard. From the Son. We must, we are, in other words, we are under obligation to do so in light of the one who's spoken. This is not an option, but necessary. Not taking heed to the things spoken by the Son lead us on a trajectory. A trajectory. You know what a trajectory is? A trajectory, a mark. We think about an arrow that flies in the trajectory of that arrow. Not taking heed to the things spoken by the Son leads us on a trajectory that can send us drifting farther and farther and farther away from Him. There's a biblical principle that goes, I think, hand in hand with this. And it's found in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Here we see that phrase again, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows... That he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, destruction. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. It's what we know as the sowing and reaping principle. What you invest in here will come to fruition down the road. Sow to the Spirit and you will reap from the Spirit everlasting life. So to the flesh, live apart from the word of the Son and reap corruption. Sowing to the flesh equates to living a life that is displeasing to God. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. Romans 8 verse 8 says that those who are in the flesh cannot, not possible, cannot please God. Friends, we must 
give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard lest we drift away. And the writer is issuing the warning and he's seeing the trajectory. He's seeing where they're going. He sees the direction that some are heading and he's throwing out the yellow flag. You know, in race car terminology, they wave that yellow flag. It's called the caution flag. Something's happened on the track and they, they're wanting everybody to slow. Something's happened. Somebody's gotten into an accident. Somebody's wrecked. There's something on. It's a caution flag. It's a take note. Take heed. Warning. And he's throwing this out here to get their attention. He's, he's saying the son has spoken. Listen to him. Do not mindlessly wander about in this life thinking that you're getting a free pass to heaven just because your dad and mom have a relationship with the Lord. Don't think you're going to get a free pass to heaven simply because you attend on a Sunday morning and sit in a chair. Pay careful attention to what the Son has spoken and you will not drift away. The goal is to be anchored, not adrift. To be anchored. Who are we be anchored in? In the Son, in His Word. We're to be rooted and grounded, not floundering by winds and waves of life. So where are you at this morning as it pertains to this exhortation in verse 1? Where are you at? Between you and the Lord, answer that question. Where are you at this morning? Is this applicable to you? Have you known these truths of the Son? Have you known who He is for, for a great length of time? And yet, as you think through and prayerfully consider between you and the Lord, where you're at today, the trajectory that you are on, dads and moms, as you consider the trajectory of each one of your children... What's that trajectory looking like? Is there a need to exhort, to call each of the children, to take more earnest heed to the son, to his word? Well, the writer concludes with an argument. Verses 2, 3, and 4 go together. They're one big sentence. It's an argument to support what he's talking about. He argues from the lesser in verse 2 to the greater in chapter 3, or excuse me, in verse 3. In the context, remember, he's been writing about the Son and showing his superiority over the angels. So keep that in mind as we read verse 2, 3, and 4. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect... This ties into the drift. How shall we escape, get away from, if we neglect so great a salvation? If you write in your scripture, you might want to jot that one down or underline that. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord... And was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness. Both with signs and wonders. With various miracles. And gifts of the Holy Spirit. According 
to His will. We see here in the text, to begin with verse 2, if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, we have a conditional clause statement here. And this condition is assuming, this is one of the conditions that we're assuming the front end of this condition to be true. So it's not if as in maybe if it happens, it really is true. No, it is. We could probably translate it a little bit more for our clarity and understanding. Since the word through the angels. Remember, what this is talking about here in verse 2, we talked briefly about this last week, and how the angels were a part of the mediating of the law of Moses, right? Acts chapter 7, there's a couple verses in Acts 7 as Stephen is speaking, that speak to this law being mediated by angels, right? And so we see that in Sinai, and we don't know all of the details, all the ins and outs, but what we can piece together from a few different passages of Scripture that the angels were a part of, some way, shape, or form, the mediating, the giving of the law, as God is giving it to Moses, he's doing it through the mediator, through the angels. So they're a part of the giving of the law. So we have right here in verse 2, if or since the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, the word steadfast is unwavering, valid. Since it proved valid, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Remember, this is the first part of the condition. And he's starting, he's arguing from lower to higher. He's starting with an argument from the angels and he's going to proceed to an argument looking at the sun. Okay? He says, since this word spoken through angels proves steadfast, it's, uh, it's unwavering, it's valid, it's sure. And every transgression... Transgression, parabasis, it's, it's a willful stepping over. We have this line right here. If we were to see this line as God's law, it's a willful stepping over it. Transgressing, you're, you're, you're willfully, you know what it is, you know what it says, and you willfully step over it. You're transgressing God's law. That's the idea of the word. So you have a willful disobedience, and then the next word is actually disobedience itself, which is the word Perikae, an interesting word in the original language. And it really has in mind this idea of disobedience, a, a willfulness of not hearing. You, you hear what he's saying, but you're just intentionally turning the other direction not to hear. You don't want to do what he says. Uh, maybe in the Old Testament, it helps us understand this from a, a perspective of stiff-necked, rebellious idea. Okay, Really, in many ways, these two terms, uh, O'Brien in his commentary, I love what he says about these two terms. He says they are virtually synonymous with, with both involving a deliberate rejection of the divine will. He says that the former, talking about transgression, signified this act of deviating from an established boundary or norm, right? And the latter, being disobedience is especially appropriate in a context where the law is presented as God's speech or God's word for the term originally signified a failure or refusal to hear. A refusal to hear. Disobedience. And we'll see here in the next couple chapters as he talks about the people of God entering this rest. Why is it that some back in the day did not enter into the promised land? Because of their disobedience equated to what? They didn't know, they, they heard, they knew, they chose not to. It was a refusal to hear. 
So since the word spoken through angels proves solid, valid, steadfast, and every transgression, every crossing over willfully and disobedience, a refusal to hear, received a just reward. A just. You know, some people talk about how in God's law it's just not fair. What do you mean? Well, you remember the passage in Numbers where the guy's picking up stones, sticks on, on the Sabbath day? Remember what happens to him? They bring him before the elders and, and they ask the Lord, what do we need to do here? And, and he's stoned for picking up sticks on a Sabbath day. And we think that's pretty harsh. And it is. But is it not? It was, it was what God said. It's, it's just. See, we have a holy God who's established laws. He's established parameters. He's established boundaries. And when his people crossed over those boundaries, there was a just punishment. The word reward here in verse 2, we can really translate that as punishment because the reward was punishment. It was punishment. So we have this word spoken through angels. It was unwavering. It was valid. And every transgression and disobedience, refusing to hear, received a just punishment. Verse 3. He's just argued from the lesser. Now he's going to go to the greater. Okay? That's what he's doing here. Paul does this a lot in Romans. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How shall we get free from if we neglect? And we can neglect. We, we simply, neglecting is, is that idea of letting it slip through the mind. We, 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 we are not tending to it. We talk about it up front. We're not tending to it. We're not paying attention to it. What is it we're not paying attention to? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So great a salvation. The salvation which the angels are ministering to us to inherit one day. Verse 14, chapter 1. I want you to notice from the text, he's talking about the greatness of this salvation. Remember, he's exhorting, he's warning them to pay more careful attention to what's been spoken by the Son lest you drift away. And then he gives the argument, talks about the law and how the law and the angels were a part of the mediating of the law, how that proved solid and steadfast and every one of the, the crossing over and the disobedience, the refusal to hear, it brought about a just reward or punishment. How then shall we escape, the writer says, if we neglect such a great salvation? He's raising up this great salvation. And now he's going to point us to three things as the text closes. Don't miss these three things. He's pointing us to, the, to this salvation. He's going to describe what this is. And he's going to give more proof, more evidence of how great truly this salvation is. He says, which at the first began to be spoken. That's the key, first part. Began to be spoken. At the first, it began to be spoken by the Lord. Hey, listen, as a side note, not only did the Lord speak this salvation, but the Lord himself embodies the salvation, doesn't he? Jesus, this son, is the embodiment of the salvation. But he spoke it when he was here. Secondly, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So the writer is helping us understand this message of salvation was confirmed to us. He didn't have a direct link in this, but it was confirmed to us through those who were with him. Perhaps the apostles. Perhaps others that were around Jesus during that time. 
confirmed. Verse 4, God also, here's the third proof or evidence. God also bearing witness. How is it that God bore witness to the salvation? How, How did he do it? How did he do it? The text tells us. Look at the text. God bore witness to this great salvation both with signs, wonders, with miracles, and distributions of the Spirit, manifestations of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit according to His will. You see, the Lord incorporated, God incorporated all of these things in bearing witness, in testifying to this great salvation. In fact, it's because of these things that we can truly say, and the writer can say, this is so great a salvation. It's great. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed, friends, to the things that the Son has spoken. Brian says in his commentary that the peril against which this community is to be on guard is that of drifting away, like the boat that's gradually slipping away from its moorings. And this suggests a movement that may be subtle and undetected by those on board. And along with the term neglect in verse 3, he says it points to a gradual, unthinking movement away from the faith. It's clear that the community is in real danger. I would say as a side note, the community today may also be in real danger. He says, although the general character of the warning does not indicate either its causes or nature... He's issuing the warning. If the word, since the word spoken through angels proved solid, steadfast, unwavering. And every transgression and disobedience. If you read through the Old Testament, and and, and I've been reading through the Old Testament. I'm I'm, I'm now I'm about a third of the way through my 90 days. And I'll tell you, it it is amazing. This time through, just reading and understanding, realizing the significance of the sacrifices. In the Old Testament law. And how often. I think about the responsibilities of the priests. And what they were to be doing. As they were offering sacrifices. And the amount of animals put forward daily. Sacrifices being made. Sacrifices being made for sins. It was a just reward. A just punishment. And back in the day. It was a daily coming forward. With a sacrifice. With an offering. We praise God that we have been given a mediator in this son, in Christ. The one who, as we'll get to in Hebrews, the one who offered one sacrifice for one time and sat down at the right hand. Our great high priest. He's raising up this importance of taking heed, paying attention to what the son has spoken. I'd like to close by just maybe submitting a couple things to, you might be thinking as you're reading the text and looking at the drift, you might be thinking about that drift in your own life or thinking about the drift and trajectory of some of your children or friends or extended family. How do we, what are some steps to prevent this drift? What what are some things, we maybe some starter list if you will. I'd just like to point to a few These aren't uh, 
These aren't new ideas. The first one would simply be reading your Bible. You want to know why you're drifting? May have something to do with your proximity or lack thereof to this word. So I would suggest that opening up and reading it, and perhaps even before you read it, maybe a second thing that would help prevent this drift, coupled with reading the word, would be praying. Praying to the Lord. And as you even read, maybe before you read, asking of God to reveal to you some of these sins in your own life that have entangled you, some of these sins in your own life that have caused you to keep going farther and farther out here on the periphery away from the sun. Friends, the drift happens on our end. It doesn't happen on the sun's end. A third thing that might help us as we think about this drift is to, is to get plugged in, to get involved in a church, to get connected with the people here in the body. You know, one writer describes three kinds of people in the church. There are those who are the drop-ins. The drop-ins. You know, you know the drop-ins. The drop-ins are the people who come every once in a blue moon. They may be the people who come Easter and Christmas. And they come and they sit and they hear and then they leave. They're the absorbers. The absorbers. The people who come in. They like to hear a message. They like to get fed. They like to eat. Outside of that, that's what they like. They absorb. They take in. And then there's a contributor. A contributor. Someone who is coming not only to worship the king of kings with the parts of the body, but someone who is also desirous and willing from the heart to contribute to what's going on in the life of the body. Read your Bible, pray, get involved in the local body. How about worship the Lord regularly? I think that would be another one that would help prevent this drift that's being spoken of in the, in the text. Worship the, do you realize that worshiping the Lord each day, worshiping the Lord throughout your day, how much of an impact that's going to have not only on you but on your family members? When you throughout your day are worshiping the Lord. It's hard to drift when you're worshiping God. When you're you're singing praises to his name in the car. When you're opening the word and you're reading his word. Yes, we can get mindless and, and we can get distracted even while we're reading. I know we can. Been there. But worship... Worship is such a great thing that reminds us, it it triggers our mind to higher things, to eternal things, to the Son, the one whom we worship. Friends, I don't believe for a moment that anyone here desires to drift. I I don't assume that to be true of any of you here, that you desire to drift. But I hope what you see this morning from the word is that the drift will occur. The drift will happen if it's not tended to. What's it? The word of the son. 
if Jesus doesn't really truly matter in your life, if, if Jesus isn't the one that's held fast to, lived out by faith from the word, friends, it's very possible that you are drifting. And I think the text is calling all of us here. This is for me as it is for you to see that we're not drifting to see that instead we are lending an ear. We are having an ear bent to hear what the Son has to say so that we don't drift. But let me take it a step further as we close. It's not simply not drifting that we're after. We're not simply just about not drifting. We also ought to be about glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ about walking steadfastly, being anchored to this someone better, as we'll see throughout the book, Jesus, living our lives for him. That's what we're to be about. It's not about what not to do or where not to find ourselves. Let's be about also what we are to be doing, where we ought to be finding ourselves. If we're pilgrims and sojourners here, we're longing and looking for and eagerly waiting a Savior who is yet to come. The Savior who is at the right hand of the majesty on high and the Bible says is coming again. We live for that one. I'll leave you this morning, friends, with verse 1. Therefore, we must, I'll, I'll emphasize that word because I believe it's intended to be emphasized. We must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard. In context, those are things of the Son. The Son who secured your salvation, which is so great. lest we drift away. Pay attention, friends. Pay attention to what he's spoken. Let's pray. Father, you've given such an earnest appeal. Thank you, Lord, for moving the writer to spend a few verses seeing that we get what has been spoken already in chapter 1. It's almost like a review. It's a review, but it's, it's a warning as a review. It's making sure that we understand who the Son is and how it is true that He's superior to the angels. And understanding all of that about the Son... ought then to help us as we consider this exhortation. Father, for those here today who are not drifting, I just want to praise you. I want to praise you because, Lord, I know that you are at work and you're doing mighty things in their lives. And I pray, Lord, that they would continue to take heed to what you've spoken. I pray they would continue in the faith. They would continue persevering, continue enduring. Father, I just pray that you would encourage them through your spirit to keep going. To keep pressing on. Father, for those here today who are sensing that 
Lord, you're speaking to them about this exhortation and warning. And there might be a twinge of conviction from the Spirit as the word is spoken. Father, I pray that there would be opportunity this day, soon, now even perhaps, to get these things right with you. So that the trajectory that they may see themselves on, Lord, that trajectory can change. There's still hope. And that's the encouragement of the text. It provides us hope because it's giving us a word. It's giving us an opportunity to correct course as necessary. And Father, I pray that if that is impactful for those here today, that, Lord, that course would be changed. There would be a quick repentance, a quick turning, a quick acknowledgement of the sin and a desire to walk by faith with you. We thank you for this great salvation. We thank you, Lord. It's a salvation that your son himself spoke of, embodied. It's a salvation that was passed down from the apostles. It's a salvation, God, that you yourself bore witness to. Through signs, through miracles, through wonders. Peter spoke of that very thing in Acts chapter 2 as he's standing before the group and the Spirit comes down, explaining this Holy Spirit and talking about how God has manifested himself through signs and wonders and miracles, speaking of this great salvation, which is found in and through his son, Jesus. Father, thank you for this word of exhortation. May it settle deeply within our hearts, I pray, and move us, change us, drive us, be our motivator to live differently in light of who this son is. And the word that he's spoken. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.